Well, we're starting a new series this week. Um, It's Easter in a few weeks' time, and I'd originally thought we could start this series and and build up to Easter, and what's become clear in my mind is really I want Easter to be sort of an island in the middle of spending more time looking at uh, 24 hours, the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus here uh, in this world. Uh, before his resurrection. So we're calling it 24 hours, the last day in the life of Jesus. Uh, And then partway through, uh, we're going to have that kind of little uh, island, I suppose, which will be the Resurrection Sunday. In a sense, that will allow us a bit of a kind of forward-looking from here, preparing for Easter. And then as we continue in this series 24, we can look back to that and be reminded of that. Uh, Just as a little extra, a week before that, the 24th, um, we're looking forward to a Thanksgiving service for uh, a couple of little ones here in in the church. So that will be two Sundays where we'll be having a little break uh, from this series. Let's think about it, though. Let's just stop and just as we open up and think about this whole issue uh, of the cross, I think we're hit with something uh, quite spectacular. I want you to imagine for a minute uh, how you would conceive of creating, building a world-changing order. What would be your emphasis? Would you have the emphasis on that world-changing order on the death of the founder? And yet that is exactly what the Christian faith maintains that the death of the founder of the Christian faith is the most essential aspect of the whole of his being. Uh, Now, I I would say that because of the influence, uh, and we're not talking about death as a martyr, I think you know, let, we can say that it is possible that we might can claim some sort of kind of martyr foundation. We can see that there are orders and, uh, and organizations and, and world-changing attempts which are based on the idea of martyrdom. The idea of martyrdom is not in the idea of the cross. Uh, what we see here is uh, something which is rooted in the very identity of Jesus, Uh, Now, I would say, in fairness, that as we uh, are now 2,000 years after Jesus, the idea of some sort of significant life and foundational sort of life-changing, world-changing, world-influencing death has probably emerged. But it certainly emerged on the back of this foundation which is the Christian message. If we are given the opportunity just for a minute to put our first century shoes on and take ourselves way back uh, and imagine ourselves in uh, Roman Europe or Roman Asia, the last thing that would be on our mind is to portray a world-changing order in terms of a hero that dies. That would not have at all been on our thinking. If you look at any of the literature from that kind of time, any of the, the writing, any of the kind of the aspirational writing of true 
uh, figures of that time, what we see repeatedly, continuously, is that the heroes are described as just that. They were described in terms of success. They are described in terms of achievement. They are always, always portrayed in terms of being larger-than-life individuals, people who manage to rise above and achieve greater than the norm because, after all, that is what uh, many of us think of in terms of a hero, somebody who's bigger and greater. And yet the Christian faith says we will base... The whole of our thinking, we will make the foundational aspect of our faith written into what looks like the most unsuccessful outcome, the death of the leader. Moreover, as we've looked a couple of weeks ago actually when we were looking in our Monday Evening Christianity Explored group, we find that the writers of the four Gospels commit a significant amount of their writing to his death. Around about a third centers around ideas or narrative about the death of Jesus. I think there's three pages in something like 600 pages in the life of Winston Churchill, 600 pages in his biography, three pages relate to the issues around his death. Why? Because that is not significant. His life is significant. What does that tell us? It at least tells us this, doesn't it? That the writers of the original Gospels that the whole of the idea of the emerging idea of Christianity as the Holy Spirit taught those apostles following on from the death of Jesus, we understand this, that the death of Jesus is absolutely significant. And if we miss that, if we misrepresent it, if we don't get a clear idea in our minds of what the death of Jesus actually means, how it works, why it is central, why the cross has become a symbol for the Christian church for the past 2,000 years, just that very idea seems just ridiculous. You know, I want you to make in your world-changing order an item of torture and ultimate execution as your symbol. And yet that is exactly what the cross is. If we do not get to grips with the ideas around the cross, we do not get to grips with Jesus. We do not understand him. And, and that really is why I want to spend the next period of time focusing on the idea of the cross. Because it is essential to us if we're to understand Jesus. So let's set the scene. Because we're starting now, if you like, we can click the stopwatch. The 24 hours are ticking away. Um, you know, any of you watch TV in the past few years, you might get the idea of where the idea for the series has come from. Um, it's that whole kind of tick, 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 tick. It's counting down. But this opening scene is fantastically helpful to lay the foundations for the next period of time. 
Let's see how it opens up, verse 14. We see, firstly, we see Judas Iscariot connected with the next activity. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might find that it's split into different sections, little headings. My heading is Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Uh, And then just after that, the Last Supper begins at verse 17. And it's almost as though there's little sections there helping us to understand what's going on. Remember, all the time, whenever you come to um, reading one of the Gospels, in fact, to be honest, whenever you come to reading any of the Bible, one of the important things to help us to read the Bible is to try to just stop for a minute and say, well, why is that there, and why is that bit connected to that bit? Why does that bit follow on from that bit? So that we begin to understand that when we read the Bible, there is a flow. There is a reason that it is put together in the way that it is. So we open here with Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. He has been with Jesus um, right the way through his ministry. So for three years, he's he's walked alongside him. If you were uh, following Jesus for a period of time, you were watching the amazing things that were going on, you were seeing the dramatic impact that he was having on uh, on society at that particular time, you could see hundreds and hundreds of people uh, following on, you would notice something. You would notice that if you were standing well back, there would be people who were kind of like distant observers. Uh, And then as you got to understand and follow, you'd realize that there would be some people who were really following Jesus. They were a smaller number of people. Uh, Jesus sends out 70 to go and spread the message of himself. So we see that there is a closer group of people uh, who really understand and are really used by Jesus to spread his message. And then if you were watching for a period of time, you would notice that there's this really close group. 12, 12 disciples who Jesus has called to him. And if you like, Jesus works with that really close group significantly. Very often when we read uh, accounts of Jesus' teaching, what we realize is that he is teaching this small group and there's a whole load of other people who are listening in. Those of you who know the Bible, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of the things that we see. Jesus is actually teaching a small group of his disciples, and there's a whole load of other people who are watching. And what you would observe is that Judas Iscariot is one of those who was really close. Really close. That just, that just, when I stop and when I think about that, that, that really shouts out at me. It really shouts out because what we see here is Judas behaving behind the scenes diametrically opposed to what he appears in public. Behind the scenes, he's working out a plan to sell Jesus to the religious leaders, to hand him over for 30 pieces of silver. What has caused the crisis we read in the previous verses, what's caused the crisis is that Jesus has allowed a woman to anoint his feet with an incredibly expensive perfume as an act of worship, and Judas is fuming because he looked at that act of extravagance and waste, and he isn't thinking, we could have used that to feed the poor. He's actually thinking, I could have used that because I've been pinching out of the money bag 
all the way along. In other words, consistently throughout this period of time where Judas has looked like a follower of Jesus, he has been anything but. He has appeared but isn't. And now it all comes home to roost. The final step is taken and Judas goes and we see in verse 16 from this point on he is watching for an opportunity to hand him over. That is just an amazing statement. He's got his eye on Jesus and he is now looking for every opportunity. Straight on from that we see that why doesn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just because the opportunity isn't there. We now see Jesus in the next little section. It's Passover time. It's a religious feast. We're going to have a look at that in a few minutes. Uh, And Jesus sends some of his disciples on ahead into the town. So what does that tell us? The reason that Judas hasn't had an opportunity is precisely because they are not in the town in Jerusalem. They're not in the city. They're outside of the city. In other words, Jesus at this point is making himself scarce. He's out of the city and Judas does not have the opportunity. Jesus sends a few of uh, his disciples to go in and to prepare for the Passover. They go in and amazingly the rumors, uh, they're expected. We haven't got time to cover that. But they go in and they make preparation. It seems to me as I read this as though Jesus is the one who's in control. Now, we're going to see that that is actually the case. But Judas is looking for an opportunity, and Jesus is not giving him the opportunity. In fact, he sends just a few to go and prepare so that just a few know where they're going. And then they go into the upper room, and then they go into this place where there's just a small group of them in the evening meeting with Jesus. And then there are devastating words that come out. Words which convince me that the next 24 hours are not a shock to Jesus. Look at what verse 21 says. They're reclining at the table in the evening. Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Have you ever had one of those moments? Um, I remember them in school. Happened all the time. Um, where the teacher would say something along the lines of, one of you hasn't done your homework, or something along the lines of that. You know, it's kind of one of those general public statements, but you know that this is not a public statement in a way. It might, for all intents and purposes, for everybody else, it might be, just a general, really, someone's not, someone's not done their homework. Actually, our school never said that, and it was never just one. Uh, but there you go. Uh, imagine how Judas felt at that moment in time. I thought I'd gone to the high, high priests. I didn't think anybody had seen me. I didn't think that anybody possibly saw me go and make the plans to hand Jesus over. And now Jesus turns around and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Who's in control? Who is actually moving the pieces in the game? See, Judas thinks he is. 
For Jesus knows that he is. Jesus knows that he is the one who has the next period of time absolutely in his hands in exactly the same way as he has all along. There's another little aspect of this opening section which convinces me that that is the case. It's how he tells his disciples to go and get ready. He speaks to them in verse uh, 18. He says, go into the city and a certain man, to a certain man and tell him. This is what you say to say to him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. That statement is absolutely loaded with significance. Jesus says, my appointed time is near. My time. My time. The time that I've been preparing for and building for for the past three years of ministry, the time that has been in my visibility from the time when I, I was born and, and as I grew and came to a knowledge and an understanding of that pathway as I, as I was in relationship with my Father in heaven, as I looked forward and saw, my time is on the horizon. And if you follow the ministry of Jesus again and again and again and again, he says, it's not my time yet. It's not my time. It's not my time. And now he says, my time is near. This is it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. I've been building up for this, and now we are at that point. This is the moment. There's two things. Jesus has the appointed time in mind, and he knows that it's now. And he also, as he speaks to Judas, he knows to the whole of the community, but directly to Judas through veiled words, he knows exactly how it's going to work out. What does that tell us about the cross? What does it tell us about the next period of time? It at least tells us this. It's not a shock. This is not a surprise to Jesus. The fact that the next period of time unfolds the way it does It's not a disastrous outcome. It's precisely what he has had in mind as he works in obedience to his Father and he knows that the time is now. Now that should give us a great deal of confidence. It should fill us with hope. Because if we are called to worship and serve somebody who is at the whim of the events of this world, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. If we are called to follow somebody where all of the events, think about it in this way. Okay, I want you to put all of your trust in that person for the whole of your life. And, and, and the natural question would be, well, well how, how safe is my life with them? What can affect them that ultimately, therefore, will affect me? How can life and this world play out for them so that I'm no longer secure? If Jesus is at the whim of the events in this world, we've had it. 
And yet what we see portrayed here is that Jesus is absolutely in control. He has all of these events in his hands. So even when it looks like a crisis, even when it looks like it's a disaster, it's in his hands for him. What does that mean for me as I trust in him? It means that the events that I'm facing, the events that look like a crisis and a disaster, the events that feel as if life is spiraling out of control, are in his hands. They're secure because his hand of guidance and hope and security and control and all of those things is absolutely essential for my security, for my hope. So as we come to this, as we look at these, the, the opening statements of this 24 hours, we need to know that Jesus is the one who is in control. And that is precisely what Matthew tells us. You know, if, if he said, by the way, if Matthew had written his gospel and he said, by the way, you just need to know Jesus is in control in all of this, that would mean nothing. <laughs> it, it, a statement like that means nothing. But if Matthew is able to display, this happened and it shows that Jesus was in control and he said this, which shows that Jesus is in control. It convinces us ahead of the next hours that it's in his hands. And it has profound impact for us today. Number two, the scene is set, okay? Number two, the the next thing that we see here is the Passover is emphasized. The Passover is emphasized. That's when it takes place. The disciples say to Jesus, where do you want to make preparations? Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? We're going to do this, aren't we? Why are we going to do this? Well, maybe Passover is completely new for some of us. So let's just take our time back. Let's just kind of, you know, go back in time and realize what is the foundation for this? Why is it that Passover is really important? What's Passover actually even all about? Well, the significance, again, I would say, is in the words that Jesus uses, this is my appointed time. You know, it's not a surprise that this starts all to happen at this particular point. It's because Jesus has decided that the Passover is part of the package which makes it his appointed time. It's not, wow, isn't it amazing? Isn't it a remarkable coincidence that all of these events unfold at that particular point in the Jewish calendar? Not at all. This is the appointed time because it's Passover. Say, well, okay, what's Passover? All of the followers of Jesus and Jesus himself were Jews. In fact, if we trace the storyline of the Bible, we find this. We realize that the way that God spoke to this world, to the whole of this world, was he spoke through a people, a people who he remarkably and amazingly created and then delivered and rescued. And the Passover is central to their delivery and rescue. 
works like this. Step one, we looked at it a few months ago. If you weren't able to join us, all of the talks are available to download. We looked at the history of Abraham, the story of Abraham, whole of his life. He's the foundation of the Jewish faith. It's where God really starts to speak to people. As we see that unfolding, we realize that amazingly, against all odds, a small well, we call it a nation now. In, rea- in reality, a significant group of people is formed from a family. Significant group of people. Uh, and those people find themselves in Egypt. Initially, it's great news. There's a famine in their land. They end up in Egypt, and they are fed in Egypt, and everything is going remarkably well. And then two things happen. Their older brother And the story of how they get there is rooted in the story of Joseph. The reason that they get there is because of Joseph. He's received a a very high place in the court of of Egypt. Uh, He dies, and the Pharaoh who was in charge also dies. And suddenly God's people are at the mercy and the whim of the Egyptian Pharaoh, who is a ruthless dictator. And they end up as slaves. I was watching um, TV news this morning. Remarkable to watch the shocking, awful, dreadful uh, trafficking of people that is going on in in our country today. It's just shocking, breathtaking, awful. The reality is that slavery has been written into into the psyche of our being from the very beginning of time, we, we always have that aspect of imposing on other people. Pharaoh ends up creating a massive slave population out of God's people. And God speaks to Moses and he says, right now, you're going to get my people out. I am going to save you. That's what he says. I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you from the hand of Pharaoh. And various events unfold, and it finally culminates on one moment, one night. There's been all sorts of reasons why Pharaoh should have listened, and he doesn't listen. Uh, And finally, God says, right, now this night, this is what you're to do. Every one of my people, you're to take a lamb. You know, we're we're now at the point, aren't we, where for most of us, um, the only way that we get meat is when it's kind of neatly packaged on a polythene base covered in shrink wrap. Uh, it's not, it wasn't like that back then. You're to take a lamb, you're to slaughter it. You're to take some of the blood and you're going to put some of the blood on the doorposts. You're going to mark, your, your mar- you're going to mark where you live. That's the idea of the blood. You're going to mark where you live. And then you're to go inside. And as a family... Once it's night, after twilight, you're going to cook all of that meat and you're going to eat all of it. And anything that you don't eat by the morning, you're to get rid of. It's all to be consumed. And you're going to eat it in a really strange way. You're going to eat it ready for a journey. Be ready. You're going to get your cloak on. You're going to be dressed, ready to move. It's exactly what they do. And during that night, God visits the, the whole of that population and in every home, we're going to have to cover this in the next few weeks because it's startlingly important, in every home the firstborn is dies. Now for those of you who've kind of 
used to the message of the Bible, used to seeing connections, that firstborn starts to ring bells, but we'll cover that in a few weeks. Firstborn dies. And that firstborn who dies becomes the trigger point for all of God's people to get delivered. Now, the remarkable thing is wherever there is blood on the doorposts, there is no death. That, that event is absolutely written into the psyche, into the being of God's people. That event, it's called the Passover. It's the moment where the angel of God passes over his people and brings judgment on those who are oppressing. And the Passover is just written deep in. In fact, later on, God says, you are to celebrate this every year because you are to remember what happened. And Jesus says, I am going to make my appointed time coincide initially, (laughs) initially coincide with the remembrance of when God has delivered His people, when God has saved His people. That's when my time is going to appear. Peter later recognizes this, and he says, you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen... What does Peter say? Peter says the appointed time doesn't go back just to the Passover. Peter says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In other words, now just stop for a minute. Jesus says the appointed time is the Passover. And then Peter reflects and he says, the appointed time, yes, it's the Passover, but it goes back even further than that. The idea of the cross, the idea of the death of Jesus is in the mind of God before he even created the world. What does that say? It says that the cross is not an instinctive reaction by God to resolve the problem of sin. It is the determined decision to display Himself in some particular way. Because the cross was planned before the world was created. (laughs) It's not without plan, even in these hours. It's not without plan over the centuries. It's not without plan over the millennia. It's not without plan outside of time. And it's all to do with the deliverance of God's people. But the next thing that Jesus does is even more remarkable. Because if He brings a coinciding of the cross with the Passover, he now restates 
the Passover. In fact, he places himself in such a significant profile in the time of the Passover that the Passover ends and he steps into the fray. Look at what happens. Firstly, we see that um, Jesus is eating with his friends. We see that the Son of Man, is, this is Jesus talking about himself, is going to be betrayed. Judas is the one. And then while they're eating, look at verse 26. While they're eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of all of it, uh, drink from it, all of you. What does Jesus do? Isn't it interesting? We don't read anything about them taking a lamb, a kid, and roasting it and eating together. We don't read anything about the disciples celebrating Passover together. What we do read is Jesus creates a new meal. He enacts a new meal. For hundreds and hundreds of years, one meal has been celebrated. A meal which is just written into God's people, devised by God, planned by God, the specifications of how you to observe it are defined by God, and then we come to this moment, and Jesus enacts a new meal, bread and wine. Isn't that significant? Isn't that massive, actually? Isn't it remarkable that it's almost like there is a step change in the way God is dealing with His people, isn't it? All the way along, we've been celebrating, quite rightly, the Passover, because we've been looking at how God delivered His people in the past as He passed over. And now we read that Jesus says, here's a new meal. Why? Why? Because he's enacting a meal now. He's saying this is how it's going to be. Eat this meal in this way because there is going to be a new deliverance. Do you see how the Passover worked last time? They ate the meal together and then God acted. All of God's people, they they ate together, they marked the doorposts with blood and then God acted. Look at what's happening here. They eat the meal together, and then God acts. And then, in the past, they ate the meal together, God acted, and then they carry on eating the meal for the next hundreds of years to remember what's gone on. And what do we see here? They eat a meal together, God devises it, God structures it, God says this is how it's going to be, then God acts, and then He says, now for the next however long until I come back, you keep on doing what we did back there. Why? Because this is the moment when I deliver. This is the moment when I deliver my people. So he physically reenacts a meal. Secondly, he restates 
and creates a new covenant. There's a kind of, we read about a covenant that God is going to bring, and then we see this is the moment where the covenant is introduced. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant. What's a covenant? promise between one and the other. Generally, in, in, in terms of how we understand it in the Bible, it is a promise made by the greater to the weaker. I will deliver this promise to you. And Jesus says, I will make a promise to you. That's what the Passover was back there, wasn't it? I'm going to promise, God says, to deliver you from Egypt. <laughs> I promise in that. Now, I want you to If you like, I want you to join me in believing in that promise by doing what I say, which is to take the goat, to eat it, and to to spread the blood on the posts and all of those kind of things. I want you to do that as a statement that you believe my promise. And Jesus says, here's a new promise. It is a promise which is enacted... By my blood. (laughs) Why is blood significant? Because it was significant back in the Passover, wasn't it? There was blood on the doorposts that were marking safety for those inside. And Jesus says, here's a new aspect of safety. And the promise is written in my blood. Not in the blood of the sacrifices of the past, written in my blood. I don't know what the disciples would have thought when they heard that. In fact, I probably think that they, they just didn't get it when Jesus said this. The way they behaved afterwards would suggest they didn't get it. And I think over time, as the Holy Spirit taught them, they understood the significance of this. This is a new promise in my blood. Thirdly, he defines a new deliverance. The Passover back there says, do this, eat this meal, put the blood on the posts, get ready to move, and and then it will become clear when to move. Your deliverance is going to literally be physically moving out of Egypt and entering into a new place as a new deliverance. Verse 28 continues to say, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's the chains of slavery that we live in today, according to the Bible? If the chains of slavery in Egypt were literal chains, were literal oppression, the real pressure The real oppression, the real chains of the bondage of sin. And Jesus says, this is the freedom in me. He defines a new deliverance. What we're going to discover over these next weeks, it's a bit like one of those moments where all of the ideas, have you ever had one of those moments where something comes to light and it's like hundreds of pieces drop into place? 
It's like all of the ideas suddenly start to drop into place. One of those rushing moments where it all becomes clear. This is the beginning of the Bible's rushing moment. Where everything that has gone before converges, makes sense, finds its meaning. As Jesus says, you can be delivered from the bondage of your sins by forgiveness through my blood, which is shed, and that is my promise. All that I've done there is I've said in reverse order what Jesus said. It's a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we go back the other way and say, I can find forgiveness of sins, freedom, through his blood, because he makes that promise. 24 hours to change the world.